Yo, San Francisco, Jay and Silent Bob are going to show you their Halloweenies. October 28th at the Castro Theater. Dress up and party down with a costume party, prizes, and a live podcast recording with Jay and Silent Bob Get Old. Then, scope out the controversial thriller Red State, followed by a Q&A with writer-director Kevin Smith. Laugh, then shit your pants in suspense with a Halloween extravaganza double feature, Jay and Silent Bob Live and Red State, October 28th at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. Double-click for tickets for this and all Smodco shows at csmod.com. Yo, Solana Beach, California. Guess who's gonna get old live? Not old as in... Christ on a popsicle stick, this is boring. I'm talking about Jay and Silent Bob get old, no fuckers. Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes are coming to the Belly Up Tavern on November 22nd. Don't miss the debauchery, Iggy B. Jay and Silent Bob get old, recording their podcast live at the Belly Up Tavern in Solana Beach, California on November 22nd. Get your tickets for this and all other Smodco shows at csmod.com. Red State DVD and Blu-ray available now at coopersdell.com. Get exclusive bundle packages featuring posters, soundtracks, t-shirts, signed scripts, wardrobe used in the film, and a chance to be a guest on air with Kevin Smith via Skype. Red State DVD and Blu-ray exclusive bundles now at coopersdell.com. Smirch alert, smirch alert, motherfucker smirch alert. Go to smodcast.com slash smerchandise to get your official Jay and Silent Bob iPhone 4 cases from Casemate. Choose from three different snoogerific designs. We got soft ones and hard ones. Hey, I'm talking about the cases, bitch. All emblazoned with your favorite Smodco icons, Jay and Silent Bob. Snag your iPhone 4 case for $39.99 and protect the precious smodcast.com slash smerchandise yo Canada Jay and Silent Bob are gonna be royally mounting you December 7th in Vancouver December 8th Edmonton December 9th Calgary December 10th Saskatoon and December 11th Winnipeg their comedic maple syrup's gonna be gushing all over your timbits. How's that for a visual, eh? Jay and Silent Bob get old. Live in the Great White North. Linky links to tickets at smodcast.com slash get old in Canada. Hey, Eldborg, Iceland. On November 11th, Kevin Smith will be inside you. Kev is bringing his famous Q&A to Eldborg Main Hall, talking movies, comics, sex, taking a shit, whatever you want to ask about. Hilarity will ensue. Kevin Smith, live at the Eldborg Main Hall in Eldborg, Iceland, on November 11th. Links to tickets for this and all Smodco shows at csmod.com. So, you're saying, yo, sir, dude, I love sir, and I want to show the world. Wear your sir love with our official t-shirts, biatch. Fishies have no eyes. Let us fuck. Jay and Silent Bob get old. The Garmy. There's also posters, action figures. There's so many to choose from. 
Grab your smirch at smodcast.com. Scroll down and click on Smerchandise. Catch live video clips of Jay and Silent Bob Get Old and Hollywood Babylon on the Kevin Smith blog for the Huffington Post. Huff.to slash Kevin Smith blog. That's Huff.to slash Kevin Smith blog. Want early access to tickets for Smodcast Internet Radio's metric fuckton of live shows? Join Smodcast. For just $4.99 a month, you'll get CD-quality audio of every podcast you hear on Sir ad-free. It's like watching porn without having to fast-forward through that goddamn plot. You'll also get bonus video content and other badass exclusives. Smodcast. Where Smodcast goes save for pay. All the deets at Smodcast.com. This is Kelly Carlin. And welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Oh. 
18 and a half minute gap. I can hear John. 18 minute gap. Oh, there we go. Hi, everyone. I think you've been missing me the last few minutes. Uh, you know, it's just the way it is. It's, uh, it's the 21st century, believe it or not. Uh, so I hope you all can hear me now. Uh, I'm going to just turn up my headsets a little bit. Oh, there we go. Yeah, I'm totally on. So everyone, welcome. It's Awaking from the American Dream. That last song was Radical Heart by Ross Falzone. F-A-L-Z-O-N-E. You can find him at rossfalzone.com because everyone on planet Earth has their own website, of course. Uh, a couple of things uh, before we jump into the show today. One of which is I just remind everyone, if you're in the Bay Area or in the vicinity of the Northern California area, I'm going to be up there November 13th with my solo show, A Carlin Home Companion. And I'm very excited about it. Uh, Paul Prevenz and I have been working furiously on uh, the script again and again and again. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's it, but it's really shaping up to be an amazing show. Not that it wasn't already, but uh, I'm really excited. And I just want to thank Paul Provenza for all the dedication. Uh, tomorrow I'm off to uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, to the uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson Center's um, big event they're having, a big gala event. Uh, and I'm really excited because I get to go see Monticello, um, where Te Jefferson lived and, and farmed and all of that. And I've never been there. And I'm a huge Jefferson fan. So it, I feel like t this week, uh, this show today is very Washington American kind of oriented, uh, because of my guest and because of this, uh, story I'm going to read from my solo show. Um, anything else I'm just trying to think of? Um, I don't think so. Um, uh, I barely got any sleep last night. What can I say? I'm a little spaced out today. I took a nap at 1030 this morning. It's the strangest thing in the world. But I had to get up early so that I could, um, you know, I'm going virgin across the country. And I, of course, I buy the cheapest ticket economy. But if you check in right away, the minute you can check in at Virgin, there's always the... Um, the row, the uh, emergency row seats in the front row, which are the premium economy. And for pretty cheap, you can upgrade into those seats. So I probably just told America my secret, which is going to be bumming because now you're going to do that trick. So I actually got to upgrade this morning. So I had to be up at like 6.55 to do that. Um, and of course, you know, you have to wake up at 5.30 to do that because your brain does that. Okay, so uh, welcome everyone. I'm going to do a little excerpt from my show. Technically, this is not what's actually word for word is in my show. It's actually a separate standalone essay that I have taken apart and um, <clears throat> for my show and kind of inserted it so it fits better in the show. But this is a an essay I've done around town here at Sit and Spin and a couple of other places. And uh, it's about the summer of 72. 
So I'm going to read it to you now. It's, it's called uh, That Scary Summer. 1972 was quite a summer. Everything had changed. Only a few years earlier, my dad had been a clean-cut, thin-tied, suit-wearing guy who was opening for the Supremes in Vegas and doing spots on the Ed Sullivan Show. He had been making a great living, working clean. Now, in 1972, his hair was down past his shoulders, tie-dyed shirts and denim jeans were his fashion staple, and he was a counterculture god headlighting at almost every college campus in America. He was now making a great living at what some called working blue. Although our family was now officially part of the counterculture, my mother still wanted her American dream home. So that spring, we moved from a small apartment in Venice Beach, where where we had been surrounded by our people, hippies, bikers, and freaks, and into a huge modern house atop a hill in Pacific Palisades, where we were now surrounded by someone else's people, Rand Corporation executives, a National Security Council bigwig, and lots and lots of Governor Reagan's fans. Although Venice had been a really rough neighborhood, in some ways it felt safer to me. At least our freakiness blended in. Now it felt like our freakiness could possibly lead to Nixon's enemies list. I remember during the first month we lived in the Palisades, there was some sort of party across the street with men in suits and women in cocktail dresses mingling on the lawn. I guess they were the Rand executives. My dad and I were in our front yard, and in a large booming voice he said to me, Hey, Kel! Look at all the assholes over there. Heads turned, bodies bristled, and I wanted to disappear. An alarm went off inside of me, and I suddenly felt very, very unsafe. Recently, my dad had become more and more antagonistic to those on the other side. It was fueling him artistically and politically, but nonetheless, it was making me very nervous. 1972 was quite a year in general, because, as you all remember, the country was divided. Lines were firmly drawn, and sides were vehemently chosen. Freaks versus straights. Heads versus blockheads. That summer, I was nine, and Mom and I went on the road with Dad. First stop, Kent State. While there, we went to the memorial for the four college kids who were shot by the National Guard. My dad explained that they had been protesting against the war, standing up for what they believed in, and that the government silenced their voices by killing them. He wanted me to understand that this had been going on for centuries against blacks and Native Americans, and now young white American girls and boys were in that category, too. Being an only child and one who was increasingly needing to be more mature than my years, mostly due to the chaos of my parents' drug and alcohol abuse, I acted nonchalant and calm as I was taking in this postmodern civics lesson he was trying to teach me. But churning inside of me was the question, if the government was shooting these people for standing up for what they believed, would they shoot my dad or even me? Next stop, Summerfest, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Summerfest was basically an ocean of beer with an island of sausage in the middle. You know what they call good, clean American fun. By this time in my dad's career, he was doing something called the filthy words routine. Now, this Summerfest was an outdoor venue where the main stage act could be heard throughout the fairgrounds. So there was my dad on stage, for the most part, killing it. And there were mom and I backstage enjoying the show when suddenly the promoter came up to my mom and said, the cops are here. They're complaining about the language and they're going to arrest George the minute he walks off stage. 
Knowing that my dad was carrying drugs in his pocket, grass and coke, my mom thought fast, grabbed a glass of water, and walked out onto the stage. Dad, confused, took the water, and mom whispered, exit stage left. Dad wrapped it up, exited stage left, and we quickly hustled into the dressing room where the door was locked and the drugs were stashed. When, bang, the sound of a gun went off. It was a balloon. (laughs) Someone had popped a balloon. Everyone laughed a nervous laugh. Well, except me. And before I know it, the door had opened. My dad walked out, and within a few seconds, policemen cuffed him. Terrified that I would never, ever see my dad again, I cried and clung to my mother's body. Finally, she calmed down and left to get him out of jail. I went home with the promoter to his house and family where I spent the rest of the weekend doing something that as a Southern California girl I had never done before. Swim in an above-ground pool. Next stop, Carnegie Hall. While in New York, we stayed at the Plaza Hotel for a whole month. You know, because we could. Have you ever heard of the character Eloise? Well, now Eloise, now, well, uh, imagine Eloise in a tie-dye t-shirt, sneakers, and a denim jacket with a patch that said, make love, not war. That was me. Every day, I went to their ice cream parlor, ordered a hot fudge sundae, and charged it to the room. Every night, I headed down to the basement theater to watch the off-Broadway musical Curly McDimple, a Shirley Temple spoof. I was enraptured, not only because I'd always wanted to be Shirley Temple, but because a young girl was on the stage, a stage that only up until that point, my dad had occupied. By the end of the month, the star and I had become good friends, and the producers let me audition for the West Coast version. I did not get it, and that was okay. Even though I wanted up on that stage, the whole idea actually terrified me. But then it was Dad's big night, Carnegie Hall. Inside the theater, we were all hunkered down in the dressing room. Dad anxiously paced. Mom sat in a deep, intense conversation with a perfect stranger. And I munched my way through a bowl of potato chips. Suddenly, we got the knock. Two minutes, George. Escorted by the promoter, Mom, Dad, and I left the quiet of the room and made our way through the bowels of the building. As we came up from the basement, we started to hear feet stamping and the chant. George, George, George. There were over a thousand voices saying my father's name over and over again. And when he stepped out onto the stage, they erupted into a roar and every hair on my body stood straight up. I felt energy all around me and a joy ached in my chest. I felt extremely alive. The buzz in the air was intoxicating. It was the same buzz I was looking for on that stage at that plaza. But this one was a lot easier to get, a lot less intimidating. All I had to do was just stay near my dad, and the buzz was free. Since the ship set sail 
We've been following the night just to hear its tales. It's been a long time since I have seen a map. If there was a place that we were trying to go, we'd be far off track. There's not a cloud up in the sky tonight. There's no land within our watchman's sight. Oh, the sea's calm, and it sparkles with the stars' reflected light. We've not even one candle lit, for the moon is unbelievably bright. No one has kept track of how far we've gone. Been too long to recount all we've done. Truth be told, right now I'm not even sure where we are. We'll know which side of the world when we can see the North Star. As the stars in the east disappear to pink, I listen to the wind meet my breath as I think of what more is out there that we haven't yet seen. I could spend the rest of my life in a new part of the sea. Kept track of how far we've gone, and it's been too long to recount all we've done. Truth be told, right now I'm not even sure where we are. We'll know which side of the world when we can see the North Star. That was uh, Logan Heftel uh, singing North Star. Logan uh, works with Taylor Negron a lot. Um, they're doing a new show, I think, in New York right now. Logan's an amazing talent, just a beautiful soul of a young man. Check out his stuff online, Heftel, H-E-F-T-E-L. So let's go into my guest now. I'm very excited about this. This is very surreal for me here. <laughs> At age 31, John Dean served as counsel to the President of the United States from July 1970 to April 1973. 
Before that, he was the chief minority counsel to the Judiciary Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives. John recounted his days at the Nixon White House and Watergate in two books, Blind Ambition, with a new uh, extended afterward that was released in 2010, I highly recommend it, and Lost Honor. After retiring from a business career as a private investment banker, he returned to writing best-selling books and lecturing. Other books of his are The Rehnquist Choice, The Untold Story of the Nixon Appointment that Redefined the Supreme Court, Worse Than Watergate, The Secret Presidency of George W. Bush, Conservatives Without Conscience, Broken Government, How Republican Rule Destroyed the Legislative, Executive, and Judicial Branches, and Pure Goldwater. I know there's a few other in there, too. Presently, John is a visiting scholar and lecturer at the University uh, of Southern California. That would be USC. I'm a Bruin. Annenberg School of Communications. And he's a regular on-air contributor to Countdown with Keith Oberman and Current TV. Welcome, Mr. John Dean. My pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) It's really fantastic to have you here. It's my delight to be here. Uh, John and I, of course, uh, like so many of my guests, met on Twitter (laughs) in this strange world we live in these days. And I don't even know how it happened, but I might How did you find me? You know, someone, I think, retweeted something you said, and I was... Uh, I hadn't thought about you in many, many years. And uh, I thought, well, that's an interesting thing coming. And then I like checked you out a little bit. I'm like, oh, okay, this is really interesting. This person's, well, you're an extremely thoughtful, smart uh, man who brings a lot of perspective to things. So I was immediately attracted to that because that's the kind of people I like to talk to here. Well, there are a lot of bright, smart people out there. I enjoy it for that reason. Yeah. I, actually, what happened is the first day I, w- I was on for about a year, but didn't tweet. Mm-hmm. And I had an exchange with Keith Oberman. And he said, let me let people oh, yeah. know oh, you're that. here. Yes, and, <laughs> that'll work. And, 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 I, and, I, and I didn't know you had to turn off your email notification. Oh. <laughs> and about 1,500 oh, responded. Wow. Yeah. And it, <laughs> it wow. shut down my system and I, my mail. Oh, my God. Wow. Well, you know, that's how we learn these things. Right. <laughs> now I know about email notification. Well, yeah, that's that's pretty much like if Keith Oberman or Michael Moore or Kevin Smith retweet anything for you, you'll instantly get about a thousand new followers. It's pretty right. it's pretty amazing. Um, so I, I've been, uh, really enjoying my time doing some research for, for this interview, uh, reading, reading some of your books, uh, Blind Ambition, I read uh, the newest version of it and really enjoyed it because I was like I said in the piece here, I was 10 years, you know, nine years old in 72, 10 years old in 73. My memory of, of the Watergate hearings is we were spending the summer up in Versher, Vermont, and there was a little black and white TV and all the adults were hovering around just locked into this room staring at this little black and white TV. And I just remember, uh, Sam, what's his face, his eyebrows? Irvin. Irvin's eyebrows. The chairman of the committee. Yes, the chairman of the committee. And I just kept thinking, what's, What's what's so fascinating over there? And I kind of, you know, Dad was trying to explain it to me, but I was I was. He a must kid. have gotten some good material out of those years. Well, you know, those are the years, like I said in my piece. You know, those were the years that were feeding him a, a lot of material. He didn't do a lot of political stuff per se, but was kind of feeding his certainly his political stance. Um, 
but it was it was great to read Blind Ambition because I really got to. I mean, it's first of all, you're a fantastic writer, and I know I know you worked with an editor writing that, but just the narrative of it. I'm telling you, he, total, helped, he helped draw me out a lot, which was good, which is fantastic because it is like a political thriller page turner. Even though you know how it's going to end. A tough, tough book to write for this reason. I, one, I wanted, there was no point in doing it if mm. I wasn't candid and frank. Yes. And tried to pretend that we'd done things right when we had not done anything <laughs> right. Uh, and second, you had to be careful not to walk around with a hair shirt and pour ashes. So yes. it, it, it was, you know, a, a good editor was needed to draw that out. And I think it worked. Yeah. And, and, and absolutely. I think you balanced that very well. I mean, you, you led us along in the ride and that's, Partly what I wanted to talk about with you with this is not so much the details of Watergate and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have my master's in psychology and I'm pretty fascinated by social psychology and psychology. But really what you let us do is you let us into your mind and into your heart and, and kind of watch this young man make bad choices <laughs> that we've all made, you know, we didn't make those right. particular ones, but, and, 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 and so I was, you know, I was, um, I looked up the definition of ambition or the etymology of ambition, actually, because I'm fascinated by the etymology of words. Gee, I wonder where I get that from. And, uh, what I loved about it was the the base, you know, I mean, obviously, it's something about currying favor and, 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 and wanting, you know, wanting attention of... The title from the book was kind of interesting where it came from. Uh-huh. I, we didn't know what we were going to call the book. I was giving a lecture up in Syracuse, uh, and I said during the course of the lecture that I had been blinded by my ambition. Mm-hmm. And that was a caption under a picture from the lecture. My uh, editor saw it yep. and said, that's the perfect title. It's it's true. It's true. Um, because there's there's so much holding in both of those words. Um, and the thing I, the, the deepest part of the etymology I loved about the word ambition was it's, it's a going around. And I really loved that because there's something that you need to go around when you're ambitious. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it, it is true. And, and so I, I was, I wanted to kind of get your take on that. Like, what do you think you went around? Well, I, I'm certainly in favor of people having ambition because yes. it helps accomplish things. Absolutely. And, and those with, there's it, healthy ambition. Yes, there's healthy ambition. Of course. Uh, but that's with vision. Yes. <laughs> yes, and awareness. And and right. And, yeah. and and not just an obedient response to a, an action. Mm-hmm. But uh you know, it it was just one of those things that uh, uh I thought you put your shoulders down and got to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had never sought a job. I had been blessed by people offering me these phenomenal jobs at a young age. Mm-hmm. I'd been good in school. I'd been good in law school. Uh and when I got out, I found a lot of opportunities and mm. people came knocking on my door, which I thought this is pretty easy. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. So what happened is I arrived at a high post without much mileage on me. <laughs> How old were you when you went to work for the White House? Uh, 31. Yeah, that's young. Wow. Uh, <laughs> now, now that I'm 48, six, I can say that. <laughs> right. Six, six years out of law school. You know, yeah. So I really didn't have much mileage. And that was probably one of the reasons they hired me uh, but what I didn't know is you really need a background in criminal law, which I had none. <laughs> that particular administration, you needed to be a very skilled criminal lawyer. <laughs> I think that was really a fascinating thing that it was pretty much, you were pretty far along inside the scandal and things were completely falling apart when you finally got the criminal law book out to find out what the, um, 
uh, I'm I'm totally losing it. The, the the code provisions. It was obstruction yes. of justice. Obstruction of justice. Right. Yes, it was like wow. That's... I knew we were doing something wrong. I just didn't know what it was. <laughs> what it was called. I, <laughs> and I wanted to get a name on it. That's great. And I'll, ne- I'll never forget when I told a couple of my superiors uh, what I had found. And one, John Ehrlichman. Uh, who had been White House counsel, said to me, he said, John, there's something very putrid in the water you drink out there in Old Town where you live. Mm. I said, John, this happens to be the reality. He didn't, they didn't really want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, to think about that, to, to think that you were, you know, surrounded by Ehrlichman and Haldeman and Nixon and Mitchell and, and Hoover, of course, over there at the FBI too. I mean, these are, they're interesting characters. Yeah, big personalities. Well, my first meeting with Hoover was just an amazing moment for me, which I happened to tell in Blind Ambition, if you recall. Mm-hmm. I was sent over, dispatched for reasons that are not entirely clear, uh, with a, a, a memo we thought was a fraudulent memo written by a lobbyist that had caused a whole world of problem accusing the Nixon administration of, of uh Settling a major antitrust case for a campaign contribution. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, the the author of the memo, Dita Beard, claimed it wasn't hers. So we said, let's have the FBI test it. Right. So I'm sent over to see Hoover, and and I met him in his office. Uh, he asked me to sit down in this corner uh, set of chairs, and he starts telling me this story. And I don't know if he's pulling my leg or if this is serious and this is the, this is the real man, but he starts telling me, he said, you know, Mr. Dean, he said, uh, this whole thing with, with, uh, this claim of, uh, uh, the administration taking a payoff started with Jack Anderson and the muckraker. Mm. And I know a lot about Jack Anderson. In fact, I looked out of my bedroom window this morning and I saw, Two men out in back of my house. Well, let me tell you, Mr. Dean, I have a couple small dogs. We put down papers in the hall at night for the dogs. And my housekeeper takes the papers out in the morning and puts them in the top of the trash can. Well, Mr. Dean, I looked out of my window and there were Jack Anderson's men digging lower than dog shit for information about me. (laughs) So you should understand, I understand this man. And I didn't know whether to laugh. I didn't know know how to react. Wow. So that was my first introduction to... to, (laughs) to, uh, Actually, I had met him before in meetings at the Department of Justice, but it was my first one-on-one with the uh, Mm. uh, the fearless leader. Yeah, and and that that story unfolds and folds and how it becomes a kind of a, uh, a a contest of wills between the you the White House and Hoover about the the whole who's uh, you know who's testing the papers and the oh my god it's 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 crazy <laughs> uh, one thing I, I wanted to know is <clears throat> but with ambition let's get back to the yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. complete that thought yeah what you know the way it's very clear for young people in Washington and it's it's you know it's so little changes I mm. talk to young people there I have young friends who you know, gone into government. I talked to most of the people who followed me in many of the jobs I was in, and things change very little. And what young staffers do is they try to please the boss. Yes. That's really not necessarily getting around as much as doing the job, not asking a lot of questions, getting it done with dispatch, getting it done even better than the job might have been expected you'd perform on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the way you make your way up the ladder. Uh, it, it was as true for uh, young men, 
primarily then, but men and women today, mm-hmm. uh, as it uh, has ever been. And, and certainly, you know, you come into any kind of a job, but certainly a system like Washington. And, you know, if you're new it, to it, you think, well, these people know what they're doing. So, I, you know, I should follow them. They know what they're doing. You know, they, they're, they're, they're in charge. They've gotten these bigger jobs and they're running these committees and all these kind of things are going on or, or they're the president of the United States. You know, and that's one of the real mistakes young people make. I think by the time that we get out of high school, certainly, we know the difference between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And you've got gut instincts. Mm-hmm. In fact, my son once called me when he was just starting out in business, and he said, I got a bad feel for the situation. Very bright kid, has his MBA, been a Phi bait, just, you know, good mind. Mm-hmm. He said, but I feel bad. I analyzed this situation. He was doing mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And he said, I feel bad about the deal. I, what should I do, Dad? I said, what's your gut tell you? He said, he said, he said tells me don't do it. Mm-hmm. I said, your gut's sending you a signal. Yeah. But for example, uh, you know, many of the things that w- were on the other side of the law when I got the law book out mm-hmm. and looked to see what we were doing, I found that that gut instinct was sending me lots of signals. So we do know right and wrong pretty early. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's my question is what, for all of us, when we all do it, is when we ignore the gut feeling, you know, what... What's the rationalization of that? You know, what do we what do we convince ourselves of that's <laughs> that's more important than the gut feeling? Well, as a young person, the, the the point I was going to make is that we tend to take our cues from our superiors and mm. the older people in the room and the thinking, environment. Yeah, and thinking one of the thoughts, recurring thoughts I had when I was working at the White House. Well, John, you just don't understand it. You're young. Mm-hmm. You don't know how it's played in the big leagues, mm-hmm. and you just this is right. the way it goes here. Yeah. But that isn't true necessarily. Mm. Uh, and and uh, a, a law professor recently just said to me, he said, John, he said, uh, somebody who happened to work at one of his first jobs was at the Senate Watergate Committee, and now he teaches ethics at uh, a university out here in California, and we were meeting on something else. He said, you know, what, what always amazed me is, uh, as the record shows, you were the guy who was telling your superiors that they were crazy yeah uh, and it would happen time after time yeah and i you know some of it was pretty clear you know for example i once had jack caulfield a, a, a new york city detective who'd been assigned to my office he'd been in ehrlichman's office beforehand came in he was wide-eyed and jack didn't get wide-eyed about very many things mm. new york city detectives <laughs> see most everything you could ever see but this one he was wide-eyed on i said well what's wrong jack he said well i just came from chuck colson's office another aide at the at the nixon white house known as nixon's hatchet man mm-hmm. but anyway chuck had instructed him said listen jack he said I have direct orders. I'm not going to get into a lot of details, but I want you to arrange a break-in at the Brookings <laughs> Institute, which is a think tank in Washington, because the president's convinced there's a copy of the so-called Pentagon Papers there. Right. And I want you to firebomb the place, mm. and that's the way to get in. And Jack was, you know, as I say, wide-eyed. He said, John, I can't do that. That's crazy. Yeah. He said, you got to get me out of this. I said, Jack, don't do anything. I flew to California where the president was. Uh, met with Ehrlichman. Uh, I said, Jack, this, uh, I said, uh, excuse me, John Ehrlichman. I told him it was crazy that Jack had given me this story. Mm-hmm. And this was insane. I'd actually pulled the code down again and found out that it's a capital offense in the District of Columbia if anybody dies as a result of arson. Jesus so I said, to, I said to Ehrlichman, I said, listen, you've got the White House somehow connected with a conspiracy, what could be a capital offense. I yeah. said, this is insane. Mm. So he picked up the phone, called uh, uh, 
Colson mm. said, uh, young council dean is out here, Chuck. He doesn't think this Brookings thing is a very good idea. Uh, kill it. Mm. Uh, turned to me, said, anything else, counselor? I said, no, that'll handle it this morning and flew back to Washington. <laughs> but uh, what I learned later is wow. it was Richard Nixon himself. There are about three or four tapes where he's p- literally pounding on his desk, demanding somebody get into the Brookings. Mm. I mean, this was insane stuff. Yeah. And, uh, it, you didn't have to really pull the code down <laughs> to understand this was not really the way the game should be played. Now, did, was... Th- so, so my question is: So was Nixon so different than the president? I mean, I know that LG, LG, uh, LBJ. LBJ, sorry, Lyndon Baines Johnson was a uh, you know a pretty intense gentleman around people. I've read some stuff about how he how he worked the press and worked people, and he really pushed his weight around with you know his Texas politics and stuff. Actually, but, a master politician, a master. Maine. I mean, truly, the, the title of of the great book by uh, uh, all, all politics are local. No, uh, the, the master of the Senate. Oh, okay. It's a wonderful oh, okay. history of, of of this. It's of the Senate and of Lyndon Johnson's. Uh, it's part of the uh, a, a three part series by Robert Cairo. Okay, uh, who's completed volume two and is about uh, next volume will be about his presidency. Mm. Not a book that the Johnson family is particularly happy of, <laughs> mm. but it's a wonderful insight into the way Washington has worked. So, right. uh, you see Johnson at his, at his best or worst, however you might want to view it, <laughs> yes. but somebody who really knew how to make the system work he to, did. and bend to his well. He sure did. And, and so was, I mean, did, was Nixon c- crazy or is just how people wor- worked? Things. I mean, were other presidents doing this kind of stuff Nixon, before then? Nixon was, uh, you know, I thought about this a, a lot because uh, uh, in some ways we see the worst of Nixon through Watergate. And, and um, one of the interesting drills I'm doing right now, the reason I'm back into this subject mm-hmm. is my publisher uh, convinced me to do it. Nothing like a nice fat check that will convince <laughs> you to take on a project. <laughs> Because it wasn't somebody I, place I really wanted to go. But right. anyway, I, and I've been on this now a couple of years because we discovered it was a much bigger task than we had expected. Uh, to do the book they want me to do, which is where I'm looking to see how really politically savvy, otherwise rather intelligent men mm-hmm. could make the mistakes that were made. Yes. Uh, and just absolutely decimate this presidency. Mm-hmm. How did it happen? We yeah. know the big story. Right. But we don't know, you know, really... How you make this, these consistently bad decisions. Yeah. And I don't either. I mean, and, and nobody's ever tried to pull that thread together. Yeah. Uh, to do it, I said, well, I'll look at the Nixon tapes. Mm. Uh, remarkable record. Mm. Uh, what I thought that there had been a sufficient tapes already transcribed that I could just work from those. Mm-hmm. To my surprise, well, I learned uh, the Watergate prosecutors had prepared about 80 tapes. Um, a historian by the name of Stanley Cutler has done about another 320 relating to Watergate. That's 400 conversations. Wow. It's a fra- it's the tip of the iceberg. Wow. Nobody had ever cataloged all these conversations. There o- there are over 2,000 conversations on Watergate. Wow. Uh, they go from literally when the president returns to the White House on June 20th, uh, three days after the arrests at the Watergate, mm-hmm. up until the plug is pulled on the taping system after Alex Butterfield revealed mm-hmm. to the Senate in July of 1973. Uh, and the conversations uh, really get rather intense in, in, in 73. <laughs> uh, but uh, 
tracking these conversations has been a real education. I, I told my wife, Maureen, I said, you know, what worries me in listening to these is that the men in my family start to lose their hearing in their 70s, and I, I'm getting there. And, and I said, God, if the last voice I hear is Richard Nixon, <laughs> I'm not so sure this project will have been worth it. <laughs> But we're still we're still midway through the project, and I, I can still hear. So oh, good. that's the good okay. news. The good news. But but you know, and what I'm hearing is surprising me. Mm. First, I'm discovering uh, Nixon is a very different personality with different aides. Mm -hmm. with, with with Haldeman, he's one person. With Ehrlichman, he's mm. somebody else. With Colson, he's somebody else. With his speechwriters like Pat Buchanan, mm -hmm. a whole other personality. With me, he's different. Mm -hmm. He's just a total. Chameleon. A chameleon, yeah. uh, which is, is, is unusual because these are his, you know, his closest aides. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing that surprised me, the ta all the tapes that are available, they have, for national security reasons, and I'm listening to tapes, and I'm sure the only other persons who've ever heard them were the people who scanned them at the National Archives mm. to, to make sure one there was no private information, family-related information right. on them, or any national security information. Right. Uh, both the the private information go back goes back to Nixon. Uh, the national security information remains remains classified. Mm. But nobody's done it quite like I have, where you're, you I'll have to listen to a conversation before uh, something that comes up relating to Watergate, something that's after. Mm -hmm. I've had about three transcribers very busy for the last couple of years. Uh, they'll do the rough drafts and then I'll go in and check them. But what I'm discovering is not only this unique relationship he has with different aides, but also his relationship with his daughters and his wife. Occasionally conversations which I thought probably should have been removed yeah. are there. Wow. Uh, th there was enough of a thread of government business that whoever made that left decision it left it in. Hmm. And I, I'm really quite struck. This is, a again, a very different personality with his daughters I'm and his sure. wife. I'm sure. I, I had some unique dealings with the president vis-a-vis -vis his wife because I, for example, uh, was shepherding the work of a couple law firms that were doing his estate planning. And rather than the president taking these matters up with his wife, he said, John, you go take care of that with, <laughs> with her. Pat. Yeah, which I, which was very uncomfortable. But I thought this is rather interesting. And he would write her memos, too. I, I can't imagine sending my wife a memo and, and getting dinner that night anyway. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, so I, I was surprised to find that this is, in fact, a very loving, warm relationship. It's hmm. a lovely relationship in hmm. these conversations. Hmm. Uh, this isn't really, not, I'm not doing a book of transcripts. Yes. But this is just the, the, the information I need to put this story sure, together. Sure. And I'm picking up other things I hadn't expected along the way. Like one of the other that cracked me up the other day where I was listening to was when Nixon and Haldeman are sitting in the office and they're discussing which secretary in the White House has the best legs. <laughs> and I gotta like tell you they, any other office. I, I gotta tell you they got it right too. <laughs> boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. <laughs> but I can't envision these men talking about this subject. It just really caught me quite off guard and wow. cracked me up. 
But anyway, the, so the, the relationship with the wife is different, mm-hmm. and then the relationship with his daughters mm-hmm. is really lovely. I mean, he, it's warm, mm. it's it's loving, and I'm sure the, that his wife and his daughters had to be shocked when this information came out. Yeah, uh, because there's a whole different personality there. But see, this doesn't surprise me. Because and I, I'm not exactly a Nixon apologist, as you <laughs> no, know. No, this yeah. is true. But this this kind of doesn't surprise me because this is something I think about, and this will this segues really nicely into the next little segment here, which is about the other book I, I read, which I just highly recommend to every citizen of the United States to read um, Conservatives Without Conscience. Um, that, you know, in my mind, um, I, I, I practice Zen Buddhism, and a lot of what we do in that practice is ho- holding compassion for everyone, for every sentient right. being. And, and so one of the, one of the meditations you do is you, it's really easy to, to send love, unconditional love to someone you love. But the real challenge is to send unconditional love to someone you hate or who really triggers you. And so for many years in our sangha, um, Dick Cheney would be that person. <laughs> and so you would bring Dick Cheney. And I you, would share that challenge with you, as you know. Yes, into your mind. And you would try. And so you would start to think about, well, I bet you he really loves his kids or something like that. And so hearing this about Nixon doesn't actually surprise me that much because I truly believe that even Dick Cheney wakes up in the morning and um, has warmth for someone, I believe. And I mean, even, I think with his daughters and his wife. He's yeah. I mean, even yes. Hitler loved his dogs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so this is the challenge for me. So and I'm, I'm sure Cheney loves his doctors too. They keep him alive with his, with his vest, his, right, his, right. his machine that he wears on his body. Um, but, uh, and so I have taken, the, especially the last 10 years, I try to take this very Zen position on all of this stuff and think, well, yes, there's conservatives, but, you know, these people wake up in the morning and they believe they're doing the right thing for the country and all that kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, which I think is true. And then last week I saw, I went to a uh, sexy liberal show. It's a stand-up comedian show with J- John Fugel saying and House House Barks and Stephanie Miller, and they had a special guest, Lily Tomlin. And Lily, I love Stephanie. Stephanie's fantastic. Yes. And Lily Tomlin, they had a little panel. Lily Tomlin came up, and Lily said, um, "He says, you know, I, I just, I need to, I need to tell you this story to the audience." And she said, "You know, I, I because of my position and who I am, I get to meet all sorts of people." In, in America, especially. And, and I, you know, and, and I get to sit at the table with the 1% a lot. And so we was at this big fundraiser or something, some gala event, and they sat me next to a big Texas oilman because Lily's from Texas and they thought, you know, they'll have something to talk about Texas or something. And so, you know, at one point, you know, they, they're ch- doing the chit chat and everything like that. And then they, Lily says something like, you know, well, I, I suppose we'll never really agree about anything. And he said, no, I know people like you don't really you know, care what I have to say or think. She says, well, then educate me. Tell me, tell me a little about who you are. And so, so they started having this conversation. Then, so he's going on and on and on. And she said at one point, um, but don't you think that it's important that we, that we, that we do take care of others and take care of the planet and think about these things in the long term? And this man looked at her and said, no, I don't. And that just kind of shot me in the heart. Like, oh, wow. And then I read your book, John. <laughs> it, it, it all fit in. <laughs> yeah. 
I have been educated this week mm. about some things, uh, and and so I, I, I you know, I'd love to, it, it, to it's talk. It's about- not really, you know, and, and this book isn't really my take. It's where I distilled an awful lot yes. of social science yes. that has never really been put in a, in a way that the non-social scientist can read it. It was a great challenge. Yes, uh, I you had did to, a great job. I had, a, I had to keep a, beside me a, a dummy's guide to statistics because uh, <laughs> I hadn't taken a statistics course in years uh, so I could read all this. And then finally when I got my head around it, I called the lead scientist in, who's done this work, Bob Altmeyer, mm-hmm. who was then uh, teaching up at uh, Alberta at the University of uh, Alberta, I guess. Uh, and, and, and his work, uh, he has interviewed... Over the last uh, 40 years, literally thousands of people Mm -hmm. to test them, to determine, you know, where they fall in in a number of areas regarding authoritarian personalities. Right. And that breaks down into really we find now three types. There are the authoritarian followers, which are called... Uh, right-wing authoritarians, mm-hmm. uh, that really doesn't necessarily connotate right-wing in political as much, but it turns out that these people are also it very, lines up. it yep. lines up. That's yep. the, it wasn't the design of the testing, yep. but it turns out to have political overtones and implications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to look at the, pe- these are the people who will follow anybody. And yes. this is, this is, this is science that started in the aftermath of World War II. Makes sense. Uh, and Altmaier actually said one of the reasons he got into this is he got bollocked up on his Ph.D. orals and got it wrong as to some of the early work in this. And so he ended up devoting his entire career to getting it <laughs> sorted out. To getting it right, finally. And actually he's been you know, one of the leading authorities in the field now mm-hmm. uh, and left a great body of work that uh, he was surprised at... Uh, uh, in fact, one of the things I asked him, I said, why haven't you ever written this for the general audience? Absolutely. And he said, well, we just don't do that. And, you know, after my book came out, it was a bestseller. Uh-huh. Bob has now done it. He's oh, on. He, he, you can just if somebody Googles Bob Altmeyer, uh-huh. uh, you'll go right to his site. And he's put that material out there for free. And it's he's digested an awful lot. He could have made my work a lot easier uh, when I had to go through all these academic and scholarly studies and what have you. Yeah. Uh, had that material been done, but he's done it now, which is very helpful. Well, um, one of the things, uh, before we get into the hardcore authoritarianism part of it, one of the things I loved about the book was that you really gave a, a, a really good background about the conservative movement in general and, and, and the definition of conservatism and, and, you know, and, and you, and talking about Barry Goldwater and, you know, that kind of Republican. Well, you know, that's, that's where this book really started because I, I had known the Senator since I'd been about 13 years of age. His son and I are, are friends to this day. We mm-hmm. were roommates in, in prep school together, hmm. uh, have, have, have remained friends all these years. I met my wife, through uh, hmm. uh, through Barry. He had dated her a couple of times. It didn't work out, but he said, John, here's a good number next time you're out in L.A., and it <laughs> happened to work for us. <laughs> it was and, a good and, number. And, and I, it was, and I I actually dated the woman he was married to, for, <laughs> but it, oh, now that, that marriage didn't work, mm. uh, and it didn't surprise me it didn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I'd known the senator, and after he retired, I was I would check in from time to time, see how he was doing, asking son Barry how he was doing. Mm. And Barry said, you know, he really needs a project. 
Uh, and at that time, I was in the middle of a very difficult lawsuit. Uh, and But I really wanted to talk to him about the lawsuit uh, where he had been defamed after he, when he ran in 1964 and decided to pursue the libel action mm-hmm. uh, as Mo and I would when we were later defamed and mm-hmm. uh, wait until it, uh, we had the case and forced them to settle on our terms. Mm-hmm. But um, the senator said, you know, in talking, he said, you know, John, I have an awful lot of material in my files. Maybe we should do something with it. And he said, what bothers me is I started this movement and it's gone in directions I don't. I'm very uncomfortable with. This mm-hmm. is when the religious right was taking charge of the, mo- the conservative yeah. movement. Yeah. And he said, you know, I uh, yeah, I go to church and all that sort of thing, but I, you know, I have my own doubts about a lot of my own beliefs, and I don't try to sell them to anybody else. Yeah. And uh, he said, I'm these people you can't deal with. They won't compromise. They, you know, if they don't find it virtually in the Bible, they don't believe it should be uh, the way anything is done. Uh, and he said. I can just tell you from all my years in Washington, the government's not going to work if we have this kind of attitude, and mm-hmm. I'd like to find out a little bit more about it. Mm-hmm. So that's where this whole book started, wow. was with the senator. Uh, unfortunately, his health started failing when I we first started working on the book, uh, and I realized it was too much for him, so I backed mm-hmm. off. And then years later, mm-hmm. I came back and picked up where I'd left off and discovered this amazing science mm-hmm. that nobody else was talking about because it explained all the things the senator was raising. Uh, and I'm sure he would have been shocked. Conservatives aren't real happy with this book, as you can imagine. Uh, well, I, I, I can't. I, oh, I, certainly the non-intellectual ones. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it's clear that I mean the way you describe, uh, you know, the, the kind of the basic definition of of being a conservative is someone who relies on what's worked in the past. Uh, you know, uh, that's kind of the classic conservatism. Exactly, the classic, you know, uh, that drawing on the wisdom of the past, drawing and, on the wisdom of the past, and and that if there is going to be any change, that we we do it slowly and methodically, and you know, and that there's a, but the, but there's a sense of. Um, you know, you, you got a sense, uh, you know, b- before the, the moral majority came in and all that kind of stuff that, that the right and the left, you know, there was difficulties, obviously, and the Vietnam War was a huge division in this country, but, but people knew how to speak to each other and talk to each other and compromise and have intelligent conversations about policy. And, and they understood that they were kind of representing two different, um, pressures on society you know one, one to go forward and one, and one to kind of stay the same and 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 people understood that and it just seems like all of that conversation it it's it's gone we don't well, even talk the, about these things anymore the uh, the so-called tea party uh is really as i've done a couple of columns on is the same old group it's just yeah. with a new brand yep uh, that people don't understand this is a group of of authoritarian conservatives mm-hmm. they practice and act just the way authoritarian conservatives have always acted they're, they they when they're activists they can soon take over and dominate a movement uh, that's what they've done with conservatism they've really hijacked it and yep. taken control of it yep. i have a lot of friends who still call them and think of themselves as conservatives uh, but they cannot get it. They you know, can't use the word. Well, you know, <laughs> when, when Pat Robertson comes out and tells you uh, what's going on is crazy, you know, we have passed over the Rubicon. Yeah. <laughs> but the only reason he said that was because he was like, as John Stewart pointed out, don't don't say it out loud. Right. It's okay to think this, but don't let everyone know this is what we're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
<laughs> but absolutely, yes. It, there's, uh, it, it, it just, it, it, what fascinates me is there's this, um, it's, and I, and I'm kind of in, I mean, what, what, what made the change happen? What, what made this party that, you know, had, uh, you know, a lot of intellectuals and a lot of people and, and a kind of a basic classic conservatism, what made it go into this authoritarian direction? Well, it's always been a thread as I track in the book. There's mm-hmm. always been this element of, of authoritarian conservative, conservative in the movement, mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't dominating and didn't take control until the religious right really uh, began exercising its control. They were able to raise a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, mailing list uh, programs working very effectively, churches and, and, and religious movements uh, are good at fundraising. And this is what began changing the uh, the direction. It, what's curious is it was the religious right that elected Jimmy Carter. Right. Uh, and then they realized we were backing the wrong mm. horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't like his positions. They realized he was a liberal. He was a man of peace. <laughs> yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, notwithstanding uh, being in the military. Yep. Uh, and and that's when they discovered Reagan. And then mm. they put their weight behind Reagan, who exploited them, who never really gave them what they wanted, right. but didn't turn them off. And they always thought they had the potential. And he played it. He played it brilliantly, yeah, because uh, he used them uh, more effectively than they were able to use him. <laughs> Which is fascinating because he is their hero today, and you always think they wouldn't let that man get elected. There's he wouldn't be on that stage in those no. No. <laughs> at that Reagan Library debate. <laughs> no, he couldn't. Qu- he, he could not get nominated today. Yeah, he he really couldn't. Uh, it's uh, nor Goldwater. Goldwater absolutely. would be drummed. You know. You know, my own views today are so far left of center, yeah. but yet they really haven't changed much. Right. Yeah. Uh, the country's uh, really changed it. Yep. Right. Nixon's yeah. views, for example, uh, while Nixon on process issues mm-hmm. is is uh, very draconian yes. and very right wing right. in their thinking, right. on policy, uh, creating EPA, mm-hmm. uh, wage price controls, mm-hmm. uh, things like that which are highly progressive and liberal, if you will. Mm-hmm. He's a Keynesian, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, a, a bad word to, uh, to most <laughs> conservatives. So, you know, we, we have just gone so far right and radical yeah. in, the, in the Republican Party. I don't recognize it. I've, I've been an independent for uh, 40 years now. So yeah. uh, uh, I have no affili- affiliation with my old tribe at all. Yeah. Well, one of the things I found really fascinating about the, the authoritarianism, uh, research that you studied was that these, <clears throat> I'm just going to read it here. It says here, uh, this is earlier in the book it says John Jost, uh, found that people became or remain political conservatives because they have quote, a heightened psychological need to manage uncertainty and threat and that the various psychological factors associated with political conservatives included fear, intolerance of ambiguity, need for certainty or structure in life, overreaction to threats, and a disposition to dominate others. That there's this actual psychological typology 
Yes. Of a person who, and, and, and so it's not. This is a a remarkable study. What he did is he took a mass of studies, Mm -hmm. a mega study, if you will. He Mm -hmm. took, he, he gathered all the work that had been done and distilled out of it what were these elements that you just raised. Mm -hmm. Uh, fear is a very big thing in, uh, in the background of most of the people who become authoritarian followers. Mm -hmm. May well be in, in those who become the social dominators and the leaders of authoritarians uh, as well. Mm. Uh, but that uh, they don't articulate it. They don't concede it. Uh, but when you start testing them, that fear element comes out hmm. very clearly. Mm-hmm. And the lack of self-awareness that they're, they're, they're not even aware of their own. Um, uh, uh, what, what's the word? Uh, the, the, the hypocrisy? Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> well, what they do on, on their self-awareness is they so compartmentalize their thinking right. that they don't see themselves as others see them. That's that's the only hope with a lot of these followers. By pointing them to the direction that they're following, to showing them who they really are and how they're reacting, right. some of them don't realize it until uh, someone it's points it out. out. Uh, and when you point it out, they will sometimes change their behavior. Uh, about 23% of the American public, this is, this is Altmaier's best guess, mm-hmm. uh, cause it's very, it's a hard figure to pull, but he figures there's a core of about 23%. Uh, who will follow anybody anywhere mm. right over the cliff mm-hmm. uh, of the American public. Mm-hmm. And you, if you notice, sometimes when the polls get down to the, the real uh tight nut of they'll be they'll hang in there mm-hmm. uh, at about 23 percent the uh, birthers the birthers right <laughs> well i think they're around 14 now but they <laughs> yeah. were uh, it was for a long yes. time it was just hovering there no matter what but that might have been people who were just finally realized rationally that this just wasn't going to fit you know work. but that that gives me hope because i think that you know that makes me think that it, it is important for all of us to stay in conversation with each other and, and to not uh, come at po- politics as a, you know, a thing that we're, we're divided and attack each other, but to be citizens with each other and to just be human with each yeah, other. I, I didn't write this book to be pejorative at all. Mm-hmm. I point that out in the book that I'm not tra- talking about a pathology. Exactly. I'm talking about a personality. I'm talking about a s- description of behavior. Right. Uh, and while some people take offense to it, others learn, have learned from it. It's, it's, to be the most, I learned more from doing this book than any book I've done I'm in sure. the political area. It was just such an eye opener. Yeah, it's uh, eye opener is a very good. <laughs> uh, so, so, and this one of the well, it explains the Tea Party, explains why they it, are the way they are. It, it does absolutely. And, and um, are you familiar with uh, something called Spiral Dynamics no. by a gentleman by Don Beck? It's a study uh, started in the 70s, and it was a, um, Don Beck uh, worked with another uh, social scientist, and they studied uh, kind of the value memes within values within memes of people. And one of the things they studied were that there's this natural evolution of uh, societies and cultures, and you know you kind of start with the tribal, and then you go to empire, and then you go to enlightenment thinking, democratic, and then there's this kind of more egalitarian kind of thing. And and one of the ways that helped me when I read this book, what to understand our country, and especially during the the, the Bush years, was that there is this they call it the blue meme. There is this blue meme of people who are traditional thinkers. It's one country, one God. And it's, and it's very much those authoritarian followers you talk about. It's, 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 I will take 
the orders from above, not orders, but I will take the information and believe whoever's in authority has the truth and holds the truth. And this God has the truth and holds the truth. And that, and that what used to happen in the Republican party was there were those people, but there were also these people that were at the next evolution stage, which was more of the enlightenment stage, which, which are the free market people with the, right. you know, the capitalists, basically, they didn't really care about God and they don't care about law and order and all that kind of stuff. They want to, they want to make money. They want to be individuals. They want to, and, um, you know, and those were people who were, you know, um, uh, you know, more of the, um, Republicans in the economic sense. And, and what's happened now is that the blue meme has in the Republican party pushed this or, you know, these people who are kind of were considered moderates, I guess, and stuff like where we're even almost apolitical in some ways, you know, as long as it had to do with the markets they, they you know, they, they had a say, but, and that helped me a lot to understand also about the way our country is kind of chopped up into these blocks of people, but uh, your book added a whole nother layer to it. <laughs> Truly, it, it, it is a um, it is revelatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's happened though? I, the reason I set up the explanation of all the different types of of conservatives there are mm-hmm. is it's a very difficult movement to understand unless you're part of it. Uh, and even those who are part of it, the first thing they say, people like Buckley, uh, William Buckley, mm-hmm. who studied it so intently, is it can't be defined conservatism. Right. Uh, it's it is a an approach, a way of thinking. Uh, and I, so I tried to sort all that out for people. Which is great uh, for me, yeah. To, to put it into perspective, I, in fact, Joanne Goldwater, who was the senator's oldest daughter, said, you know, I never really understood this move until you wrote and explained it. Yeah, it, it was very <laughs> educational for me because I, you know, being on the other side of the aisle my, my whole life, uh, you know, I didn't really, I mean, I really appreciated the, the thinking and, and the, the many different found kind of foundations of the thought, of the intellectual thought of it. And, um, and, and also really appreciated, especially in light of Glenn Beck trying to hijack the founding fathers for the conservative movement, uh, your explanation about how, um, that would be impossible. (laughs) 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 Because technically the Bill of Rights and the Constitution was a very progressive or, you know, considered liberal act. We, we are a liberal democracy, Truly. almost by definition. Yes, which really must piss the conservatives <laughs> off. No wonder they're trying to hijack those founding fathers. Well, they'd like to go back to the Magna Carta, actually. <laughs> Make that the founding document. Yeah. Well, and the whole thing about, you know, well, the American Revolution wasn't one of those, wasn't like the French Revolution. No, no one's heads were getting cut off. But it was like, well, the American Revolution was, you know, it was a revolution. When you have the word revolution in there, you're not talking about, you know, sitting down at a table and having a nice different dinner and chopping up the the country you know i mean it's fascinating that's where the that's where the think that's where so many thousands of people and many of my friends sit at home and listen to these people talk and scream at the television because they can understand them because they're saying things that are just completely untrue. Right. And they, and yet it looks like they really believe what they're saying is true. What was very frustrating to me is when the movement started its, its real drive toward intellectual dishonesty that occurred in the Bush administration. When John Yu, for example, was a lawyer at the Office mm. of Legal Counsel yes. and cranking out these legal opinions that made uh, torture 
legal. Yeah. It was absurd, the intellectual dishonesty they were mm. willing to ga- engage in. Now, I've never met John Yu. Mm. I would love to talk to him to see if he understands mm-hmm. really what he's doing or if he's just so ideological right. that he'll go in and pluck things out of context and twist them and put them into a new context and say that's the authority for this position. Right. Uh, fortunately, our while you see a few judges on our appellate courts write those kind of decisions, uh, they're also getting fed by those kind of law clerks. Uh, that really hasn't dominated the judiciary uh, mm-hmm. yet. Uh, we have some pretty conservative people uh, on the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. but I have not seen uh, I've not seen the wholesale mm-hmm. intellectual dishonesty I see lower in the movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm I'm worried it's growing and headed that way. Well, you know, one thing we do know is that the conservative movement has been very smart in their ability to understand where to place people in order to hijack the thinking and the process and the policy of of government. And framing. Boy, they're good at that. Oh, man, they're good at that. They really are. It's well, and that's kind of why I like the um, they do great ads. They they do. They know how to they know how to steer the narrative. It's yep. it's it's what they're expert at. And uh, and unfortunately, we're we're hardwired as as biological animals. Uh, and this big uh, brain of ours loves the narrative. Yes. And and whoever figured that one out. I don't know if it's well, that's Roger actually Ailes or no. Someone. Actually, it goes back to Nixon and his his. Hmm. 68 campaign is where he he brings in all the PR people and surrounds himself ah. with PR people. His chief of staff is a former ad man wow. uh, that ran one of the largest advertising agencies. Mm. Uh, the, the domination and use of the media during the Nixon administration is stunning. This yeah. is where it really starts. Yeah. Uh, wow. They are every decision is made for its political implications. Mm. Uh, it's all. all it's all tested. They were running. They were running secret polls, mm. uh, constantly uh, focus groups, testing everything, mm. uh, inventing catchy phrases like <laughs> the silent majority, right? Uh, and then it's totally, uh, totally fraudulent concept. They would have wires and telegrams sent in from the silent majority. There was none. It was all wow. they're all faked. Uh, mm. Where they had people just storming the uh, the. Uh, uh, wow, AT and T office or or, or the, uh, <laughs> the, the right. Uh, what what do you think? Um, what do you think of Obama? Like you know, before he got elected, there was this one version of Obama. What's your theory on that? And then he came- well, he, he's he's clearly very able. I liked him. Mm-hmm. I voted for him. Uh, I you know I I have been pulling for him when it fir- when he first sort of surfaced. I happened to be lecturing uh, and was asked by a number of people in the lecture hall. And my own, I, I was at that point leaning heavily towards Hillary, who I thought would make a great president. Mm-hmm. I really want in my lifetime to see a woman in, mm. in the uh, Oval Office. Uh, and so I, I had very mixed emotions. I thought, you know, Hillary has really got what it takes and yeah. she would be wonderful in there. Uh, even if the big dog comes along. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you gotta love him. <laughs> yes, I do. He is great. He's great. He's great. Uh, I've theater. heard, I've heard. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I, uh, when asked, I said, my only reservation about this man is his entire background is legislative, not mm. executive. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference. Uh, if he became president, he's going to discover, uh, from being a great legislator, mm-hmm. uh, and a successful politician and being a president. And I think it's taken 
just about three years for Obama to figure out how this place really, and I sort of predicted that, mm. how it really runs. He just complete, I think he's at 1,011 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's taken about that long to mm. figure out how the executive branch really operates. Interesting. He, he could be, a, I think he will be, and I'm inclined to believe he will make it. Uh, me too. Uh, I can't imagine. A phenomenal second term president. Right. Uh, the fact that He'll a second-term president, there's no reason a, a second-term president has to be lame, uh, a lame duck president. Absolutely. Uh, none at all. Uh, some of them just wear out. I think he's just trying to figure it out. He's just figured it out. Yeah. Uh, and he's playing exactly the character. There's a couple, there's a, a book called Reading Obama that I read fairly early where somebody studied all of his books all of his speeches, everything that he had personally written, not mm. where his speechwriters had gotten in and what have you. And he's a pragmatist. Mm-hmm, uh, absolutely. And, and he is a classic pragmatist in, in the William James tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what he's doing. But it doesn't, you know, he, he'd he be a great judge mm. uh, in resolving disputes. Yeah. But it, it, the modern presidency takes really executive leadership. Mm-hmm. And it takes the use of that bully pulpit. Mm-hmm. He's just figuring that out. Yeah. And I think, you know, hopefully in time. Yeah. And and I think you know I I, I think he had this, uh, and I kind of held it too this this vision that America was used uh, was ready to to kind of move above the fray of these divisive politics we we've been going through you know and he thought maybe one of he his could pledges. be absolutely he could be the leader in that and and these people have you know as you explain very well in your book these people do not compromise these people do not are not interested in any discussion about anything no. there's there's no there's no conversation to be had and that's you know no wonder congress what their approval rating last time i looked was at 9% was 9%. it 9% <laughs> It's never been that low i mean it, actually it was low in 92 and they all had oh, all the, right. the incumbents got tossed largely. Right. Uh, I think I think forty forty five seats went out that time. Yeah. Of pretty solid incumbents. So yeah. it, we've we, we've been at nine percent before, uh, but it's been a while. Um, you know, I I I think Obama. I think he's got it. He's figured it out. He's figured out what kind of characters he's dealing with. You're right. They don't want to compromise. They won't compromise. Uh, Can th- government work though? With no, people? Yeah. it cannot. Yeah, you know, I, I've been doing a number of columns. Uh, I write for somebody called Justia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a uh, for years I wrote for a decade. I wrote for somebody called Find Law, uh, and really had, you know, my columns would have anywhere from fifty thousand readers to mm-hmm. sometimes seven figures would mm-hmm. pick up my columns. Mm-hmm. The, the Bush people were very good to me. <laughs> 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 it produced three best-selling books. Thank you. <laughs> you did absolutely. <laughs> but um, uh, this, for some reason, they decided to shut Fine Law down, and I was able to help arrange for the entire group—a wonderful group of, of legal scholars. Some, several of them are former. Supreme Court law clerks uh, really know what they're talking about there. Most all of them, I'm one of the few who's not a law professor. Wow. Um, but anyway, uh, I write there, and I've been doing a series called Gaming Democracy. Hmm. Uh, oh, yes, I did. I read a couple of those. And, yes, and, and absolutely. What I'm, you know, it's amazing what the Republicans are trying to do. Everything.
doing it from the state level where they're going in with lots of money and 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 changing uh, voter registration yep. uh, changing laws it, it, they're the really districts and everything it, yep. it's because the system works on the assumption that majority will rule right they don't accept that right they want the minority to control the majority and they the filibuster is the classic the last column i did i show how Mm -hmm. they have decided to change the rules of the game Mm -hmm. they've so abused the filibuster in the senate where everything now requires a supermajority, a 60 vote uh, to shut off the filibuster. Mm-hmm. Uh, people wonder why Obama hasn't done more. Mm-hmm. He, he can't. can't. He, he can't. can't. They don't get that. Yeah. Uh, His hands are. You know, tied. I was. Think, I was. I was thinking today that if the if the you know everything that's wrong with the economy. Mm-hmm. I was reading a lot about the European settlement of mm-hmm. uh, of the how bank. they're taking a haircut. The banks are going to take a haircut and right. try to get that sort of. Well, Obama could be could have solved our problems long ago. But for the Republicans, I right. mean, they just are blocking every effort uh, to do what's needed to be done. We know how to fix this. Yeah, we know historically, you know, the problems. Uh, absolutely, it's yeah. not. It isn't rocket science. I mean, it, no. it's, it's compli- economy is complicated, but it's not that complicated. We have too many historical examples, and we know what will work. We know what will not work. And it's which uh, imagine if you were a real conservative, you would look at your historical examples and you would say, "What would work? What worked in the past?" Well, that, that's exactly right. That's what a, that's what a true conservative would be doing today. Yes, he would be drawing from the experience of the past to play it, put it in play right today, knowing that will work. But it's not about the public good anymore for these people. No, it's all about power. Yeah. And you know what's odd is when the Republicans get in power, they can't govern. Right. They have no programs, so to speak. Yeah. They, they, they want to demolish everything. They like the fight. They, they like they, they like to fight better the fight. than to govern. Yeah. But yeah. what they like to govern is because then they think they can stop government from growing. Right. Uh, they, why these people are not... In some other profession, I don't know. They so dislike government, they shouldn't be in this business. This is very yeah, – that, that was the most fascinating thing about some of those debates is these people on the, on the stage, the Republicans, are talking about how much they hate government, and yet they're running to be to, – to, to basically be the leader of the government. It's – it's um, – it's a form of insanity. It really is insane. <laughs> it's it's very strange to me. And and what's kind of awoken me now is that I really get like I was kind of before like you know what everyone's going to work it all out. Everything's going to be fine. But with this OS uh, the Occupy Wall Street going on now, there's there's a um, an energy and momentum going on where I'm actually. You know, one of those people that was always like, yeah, I'm not ready to go to the streets. I'm not ready to go to the streets. But now I get it. These people would rather have this whole country crash and burn than um, than than do the right thing for the public good. I really get that now. They really don't care. Yeah, that's exactly what I point out in this book. Yeah. They, they get so locked in, and they are uh, they are so convinced of their own wisdom and the correctness of the positions they're taking. Mm-hmm. When their leaders uh, make a decision on how to deal with it, they don't question it. They don't want to intellectualize any of this. They no. don't want to look at history for what they can learn from it. Uh, it, it it's it's very simplistic and it's very sad. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a little frightening, but the yeah. other thing is they are a minority. They just happen to be a... The other thing is the me- media has changed so much. It's true. Where media loves this because it sells... It's the game. It, it it's sells. the horse race. It's, right. They love it, a good fight. They love a good horse race. So they'd rather... And they, they, they encourage these people. Yeah. 
not every I'm in the school of thought that not every story has two sides or more. Yep. Some stories are so patent. In fact, I talk about this in one of the uh, the gaming of American democracy is that you know some, the fact that the press is not reporting what's really going on in Washington. Yeah. I find appalling. I agree. Uh, occasionally, a reporter will pop up and start talking about it. Somebody with some mm-hmm. credentials, mm-hmm. Uh, they will attack him for doing it. Yep. When he calls him to task. Yeah. Uh, it, well, and that's, I mean, this is why, I mean, it's it's a fascinating time because, you know, I'm on, we're on Twitter and uh, a lot of the time, you know, the Twitter conversation is the real conversation that's going on politically in this country. And, you know, the other night when the stuff was going down at Oakland, there's nothing on, there was nothing on the mainstream media. I was on Twitter, you know, following the people that were on the streets that were actually reporting because they were there. Um, the fact that some of those journalists left before the, the when the police said, "Oh, you you need to leave with your your cameras," uh, that's appalling. I thought these people, their job is to watch over us and and be our voice out there, and and I, you know, I I was a comm major. I studied all this, and they said this is coming, and I thought, oh well, it's going to all balance out in some ways, and it's just gotten more and more insane. One of the reasons I tweet uh, and started tweeting. Is because I read very widely. I always have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a fast reader, and I'm a very Catholic reader in the sense that I read very, very broad uh, topics. And I every time I read something, I think, well, you know, I we can't all stay up with everything. I have sources. So I, true. I, I, yes. I have sources I turn to yes. as cues of what I should be reading in er- certain areas I'm interested yeah. in. Uh, like I'm more interested in gadgets than gidgets at my age. So <laughs> I, I, I find I have a lot of, I have some people I read their blogs and what, follow what they have to say about them. Uh, but anyway, so I, given the fact I do go through so much material, I can evaluate what's good and bad. Mm-hmm. I try to turn to people when I tweet on to hear something worth your time. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, they're, sometimes they're long pieces, uh, but to, to stay informed, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it takes a little bit more reading. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's the reason I tweet is to try to keep people interested and to try to do it with a little wit and humor at the time. Well, well, and I think that's it's a great role, and it's a role that I don't think, you know, with, with mass media, there has been no uh, gatekeepers, basically, people who do synthesize what's going on in the world for you. We have, you know, 50, you know, 50, 500 channels and, you know, now we've got all the social media and absolutely I use Twitter for that too. I mean, you know, if you or Keith Oberman or, or people, you know, I I have, I follow some, you know, Republicans and some conservatives on there too. I want to read it. I want to know what, you know, how do they think? How do they think? And if it's, if it's a well, you know, Andrew Sullivan is another person I love following and reading his stuff. And, you know, I want to hear about the intellectual argument. You know, let's have a conversation about it. So, I think it's essential. And, and I feel like on this show, too, I mean, like the guests I bring here, you know, I have a, a really interesting audience. I have people who are huge comedy fans, obviously. Most of my guests are comedians. I have people who are into kind of the spiritual who are B- some Buddhist of, who world. Who are some of the most honest thinkers we have. And that's and why have and that's I think they're probably, you know, the smartest people around. And, right. they're, and they're willing to speak the truth yes. no matter what. And and. God, do we need that? So, so that's why I have them. And, and, and then someone like you, you know, it's to have this conversation with you today to, to introduce my audience to, to this thinking, to your books, to, you know, your wealth of, of experience and information. You know, you're a man who was, you know, 
a young Republican and went off to do good in the big city. (laughs) And boy, did you have a journey, (laughs) you know, but, but you're, you're someone who, you know, I, I want young people to know about because this is the kind of life you can have a thoughtful life where you, you, you see your mistakes, you, you learn from them and you look at the system and you think, you know, what role can I really play? And, and you're, you're a dedicated citizen. and, And I so thank you for that. It's a, um, it is a fascinating assignment. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. And you know, and that's the thing about this country, you know, you can choose, I mean, we're all citizens, but you can really choose to be an, an informed citizen and an active citizen. You don't have to be on every street corner. I, I'm something of an optimist too. I, I must mm. say, I, I hear a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of concern out there that, well, we're spiraling downward into, into our own hell and we're right. kind of Mad Max is coming right. up. Right. Uh, and that's just not true. The, the resources are still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the spirit's still there. I have the, I have the good fortune of traveling the world. I'm all over the country all mm-hmm. the time. I'm mm-hmm. talking to people in all walks of life, and, and I know it's out there still. And, yeah. And uh, you don't I, see it on TV. That's why no. people think that it's spiraling down because that's they watch right. the Kardashians. <laughs> and they might be right if that's all they're watching. <laughs> it's true because it is what most people are, or at least most people see. You know, is out there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's like with this Occupy Wall Street. You know, you see how they're running their own show and how they refuse to have a leader and how they're, you know, they're taking time and their, their demands are this certain you, kind of You know of what's way. very interesting about the uh, Occupy movement mm. itself is it is totally non-authoritarian. It is, exactly. Isn't it fascinating? It is. Uh, it, is the, it is the antithesis it is. of the Tea Party. It is, yeah. Uh, or that the whole conservative that whole, movement. That whole movement, yeah. And by, by, and therefore, the media doesn't know what the hell to do with them. Right. Because the media knows the authoritarian narrative because they've been trained in it for the last 25, 30 years very, very well. If not joined it. Yeah. If, <laughs> yes. If not run by it. Well, we have to go. Thank you so much, John Dean. Well, thank so you for having it. me. It's been a lot of fun. A, a true pleasure. And, uh, everyone, uh, please, uh, if, if you can read anything, go out and get the conservatives without conscience. It's, It'll really, it'll, it'll underline things for you, but it also will help you give some good, healthy perspective and, um, kind of take the fear out of all of it because at least you'll, you'll be well informed. Um, next week, um, who do I have? Oh, you know what? I don't even know. I don't have a guest yet for next week, which is kind of exciting. I may just pull one of my crazy comedian friends in from the cold and into my studio. So we don't know what's going on with that. Um, like I said, you can get tickets for my Mill Valley show, A Carlin Home Companion. It's at the Throckmorton Theater, 142 Throckmorton Theater, spelled T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Tickets are now available. They're really inexpensive. Come up and see me. Meet me. Tweet me. You can find me on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, if you haven't signed the petition for um, the renaming of the street at West 121st Street, please um, go to change.org and just type in George Carlin. You'll find the petition. We're still um, being challenged by the priest in the local parish where my father went to school there. They don't think he deserves it. We know different. Um, I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank all of you who subscribe. Um, you know, I truly appreciate you hanging out here. I want to thank Matt Cohen, who comes to my house with all the equipment and changes and moves all the dials and punches all the buttons. And uh, he's a, a podcaster in his own right, of course, with Bagnum.
bulletin board and the new Smidnight show, which I just love. It's just, it's, it's a party. You just, Matt's partying basically and spinning shit. It's really cool. Um, and uh, I want to thank uh, Kevin for having me on the podcast of uh, on his network. And, uh, you know, come on, find me on iTunes. Give me a little rating. Give me a little review on the iTunes. Oh, by the way, for like a couple of days, I was on the new and noteworthy front page. I was like number two or three. I thought I was going to have an orgasm. I was so excited. My narcissism was being fed very well that day. So with all this talk of authoritarianism and the right and cons- and, and, and the stubbornness of, of the conservative movement and are we spiraling down or are we not? And of course, we started today with my story of me following my dad um, on the road in the summer of 1972. We're going to end today with a little ditty that I've played before that my dad sings. Enjoy. See you next week. Everything is okay anyway. Everything is okay anyway. Well, if the sun comes out each day, everything must be okay. Yes, everything is okay anyway. If all we ever had was total war, and peace and love and giving were a bore. What if we cried and died all day? You could still hear someone say that everything is okay anyway. Volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, and tidal waves. And man is forced to live again in caves. But if all we had was fire, you'd still hear the caveman choir singing everything is okay anyway. Yes, everything is okay anyway. Everything is okay anyway Well, if kids come out to play Everything must be okay Yeah, everything is okay anyway If no one was allowed to jump or run If no one was permitted to have fun And if it rained hard every day You still hear someone say That everything is okay anyway Everything is okay anyway Everything is okay anyway Well, if you do not miss your pay, if you hear what I will say, you will know that on this day I have seen a little ray of... forgetfulness.